This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Come on in and take a seat. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at, uh, at the church and want to welcome you. And if you're first time with us, you wouldn't know this, but we are preaching through a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's a book of wisdom. It's kind of a proverbial book. It's in the middle of your Bible. So if you go to Psalms and take a right, you'll hit Proverbs and then you'll hit the book Ecclesiastes. Kind of a funny name for a book. Presumably written by King Solomon, one of the wisest persons to have ever lived and He calls himself in chapter 1 of verse 1, the preacher, the words of the preacher. And we've just been tracking the words of the preacher for many weeks now. And we are now to chapter 9. And today we're looking at verses 11 through 18 in chapter 9. So take out your electronic devices or your paperback version and get there. And uh, and while you're getting there, I'm going to ask a question. How many of you have been staying up late this week and you're tired this week because you've been watching the Olympics? Of course you have. Of course you have. It only comes four years. And we're doing an awesome job, are we not? Isn't it great? I know that there are some people here who would say, you know, it's not, you know, you can't really watch ladies' gymnastics because it's not a sport. I'd like to challenge you to get out there and do the floor exercises if it's not a sport. Here's the reality. After the two weeks is up and you're exhausted and you're tired, uh, after this great week of just seeing the greatness of athleticism and just these elite athletes, you will be tempted just to just move on to the next great thing. And here's why. You and I are drawn to greatness. It, it, part of being created in the image of God is that God has wired us in such a way that we are drawn to be amazed by things and we are drawn to great things. And, and anywhere that we see greatness, whether it's in literature or art or education or business or leadership or the Olympics, is that we're drawn to it. We want to see it. Nobody is drawn to just something that's mediocre and, and not impressive. We're drawn to greatness and we're wired that way. It's kind of like that really complex movie, The Incredibles. When the hero of the movie asks a little boy on a tricycle, he says, what are you waiting for? And the little boy says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. And he says, me too, kid, me too. He resonates the the cry of the soul in that little moment of that movie that we all know is that we are looking for something amazing to happen in our lives. And we wonder, could could greatness be a part of my story? What's greatness determined by? How do I how do I get it? How do I achieve it? Where do I see it in my own life? And sometimes we think it's found in status or finances are accomplishments, but what we're going to see that the preacher is going to tell us in chapter 9 is that greatness isn't determined by the size of any of those things in our lives, but greatness is determined by the size of our love. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read the verses 11 through 18 and pray and then share an outline and then we'll get started. 
Chapter 9, verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shoutings of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can do and that you would open up the eyes of our hearts that we would see greatness in something that the world doesn't value and something that is never put on a status symbol or popularized in the culture, and that we would see greatness found in, in your grace and in the wisdom that's only found in your love at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, an, an outline that might help as we walk through this passage would look something like this. In the first two verses of this section, the preacher gives us a setting for greatness. In verses 13 through 16, he gives us an example of greatness. In verse 17 through 18, he shows us the means to greatness. So setting, example, means to greatness. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, your greatness in this passage. I'm going to share that outline, and then if you can hang on to the end, I'm going to give a few comments about some new things that we're going to do this fall out of an application of this passage. Let's look at the first two verses. What's the setting for greatness? How does he set it up? How does he tee us up for what he's going to later say in verse 13 is a great example of greatness? Well, it's not what you, what you would think. I mean, oftentimes we, we want to be drawn into how, how do we make our lives great by a perfect scenario. If I just get my life perfect and if everything goes well and if all the lights are green in my life, then something good is going to happen in the car of my future. Well, he doesn't quite set it up like that. Look at verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift. Hello. Nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But he says, time and chance happen to them all. So what he does is he just takes the going thought of what we're all tempted to believe about speed and swiftness, about strength and fastness, about why wisdom and, and the smarts. If I'm just the fastest guy in the group or the strongest person or the wisest person or the smartest person, nothing bad is ever going to happen in my life. Maybe you're here today and you said, I've tried that. And I resonate with what the preacher's saying. I tried to be the strongest. I tried to be the wisest. I tried to be the smartest. And yet, it didn't quite work out just like I planned. Everybody in here has got a story that you'd say, you know what? If I was totally in charge of the story, there'd be a few chapters in the story where that would never have taken place. 
I wouldn't have scripted it quite like it's, it's happened. Well, the reason that is, is because he says in verse 11, time and chance happen to them, to them all. Now, what he means by time, it's a bigger word than just an hour. It means seasons. There are seasons that take place. And by chance, that's more like events and occurrences. That's a word for occurrences. So there are seasons and there are events that take place in our lives that we wouldn't have planned for. I didn't plan for that event to take place. I didn't plan for that season to, to happen in my, in my plans. And you know, it's not just like the Kansas song that maybe if you're an older person, you listen to around a campfire, hopefully partaking of legal substances, where Kansas sings the song, All We Are Is Dust in the Wind. You guys, maybe you're older, you remember that? If you're younger, it's basically a song about the all we are is dust in the wind. That's all we are. Mm-hmm. Dust in the wind. He says it's not quite like that. It's not just that we're dust in the wind. The wind is oftentimes evil. Evil seasons. Evil events. And that's what he says in verse 12. He says, For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, not a neutral net. And like birds that are caught in a snare. That means something that's, that's, meant, that's going to do us harm. So the children of men are snared at an evil time. So there are, are evil seasons and, and evil events. And you could be here today and you say, I know what it's like to go through a hard season and a hard event. I know what it's like to fall on hard times. Well, the preacher says, you know what? Not only do you sometimes fall on hard times, sometimes hard times fall on you. You didn't plan for this hard time. You didn't, understand, you didn't know that this was going to take place in your life. The preacher says to our very optimistic culture, he says, you know what? Sometimes bad things are going to happen to you and they can happen to you at any time. And if, if that wasn't sobering enough, he says, you know, you can't outrun the storm. You ever tried to do that? Maybe today you'd say, I know I can't outrun the storm because I'm in the storm. I grew up in Galveston, and when you watch the news, when you grow up in Galveston, you're looking for hurricanes, you know, right about this time of the year. And you could always kind of see when the hurricane is coming, and only the, the really crazy people or dumb people would stick around when you saw a hurricane coming. Well, the preacher says life isn't quite like that. It's more like the sudden thunderstorm that just takes place that you can't outrun. So the preacher says you're either heading into a storm or you're in a storm or you're walking out of the storm. That's everybody in the room. The common denominator of every person is the storm. It's just a matter of where are we in it. Now Jesus assumes this when he comes and he teaches and he's, he teaches us how to pray. He says, approach God as a loving, benevolent father in the midst of a broken world and pray like this. Say, Father, lead us not into temptation. The assumption is temptations are going to take place all the time. Sudden snares are going to take place all the time. But he says, pray in such a way that you'd say, deliver us from evil. What, what, what kind of evil? Well, well, the evil that the preacher talks about right here, the certain evil. 
Note, note the fish, it's certain. When the, when the net comes around the fish, it's certain what's going to happen. There's, there's no wondering, is the fish going to get out of the net? No, the fish never gets out of the net. Is the bird going to get out of the snare? No, the bird is not going to get out of the snare. It's certain and it's sudden. Note the, the, the text says, the man does not know. Time and chance, seasons and events take place suddenly. The net and the snare suddenly falls, the text says, upon them. You ever experienced that? Hard times suddenly fell upon me. And, and Jesus says, pray in such a way that you'd understand that that's going to happen and pray to a God who can deliver you out of the snare. In, a, in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul assumes this evil in such a way that he says, you know, it's wartime for you as Christians. And it always is. That's not all life is, but it is that always. So he says in Ephesians 6, take up the whole armor of God. Well, why, sh- why the whole armor? <laughs> why all the time? He says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. The Apostle Paul assumes that there are times when you've exhausted your resources and you've done all that you can And the answer is, in those moments, to stand and to stand firm in the grace of God. You might say, well, I'm new to this. I'm new to Christianity. And what you're describing doesn't make sense. I don't understand why there are evil snares and bad things happen. Where did this evil come from? Is God evil or something? What's that all about? No, God is not evil. God is good. And he's holy. There's a verse in James that says, there's no shadow of turning in him. In other words, you can't find any ulterior or evil or wicked motive in the heart of God. It doesn't exist. He's pure love and pure holiness and created this perfect world, this this beautiful world that was intended to work in harmony with him and in perfect rhythm with him and in perfect relationship and fellowship with him. And there was one creature who said, I don't want anything to do with this universe that you've created. I want my own universe and I want to be God. And we find that character in God's perfect garden, tempting man and woman out of relationship with God. And they took the bait. They took the bait. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And suddenly they knew what evil was. And they hide themselves from God. And they experience the vertical relationship with God suddenly broken. Why are they hiding from their creator who loves them so much? Why are they running from God? It's because they know evil now. And, and, and death is now slowly come and, and is at work in their lives. And they're, they're running from God when God is pursuing them. Not only is that broken, but they start to blame one another. You and I know what it's like to hide ourselves from God. We know what it's like to put the blame and to shift the blame onto somebody else because we took the bait too. We were sold the lie that life was found and joy was found outside of a relationship with God. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, where we read about this story, God sends them out of the garden. He has to because they're not perfect anymore. And they chose to break off the relationship with God. But before he sends them out, God does something amazing. He promises that in the future there's going to come an offspring, a descendant from the woman who would crush the head 
of the liar and of the accuser on that day. And he demonstrates the love of this offspring by doing something interesting. He makes for Adam and wife garments of skin and clothes them and covers their shame and their guilt. You know, when it gets really, really dark, it only takes a little bit of light to cause a lot of hope. I experience this sometimes as a dad. I have little boys, sometimes they get scared in the dark. And I can't sleep because of fear. I understand that. I'm 35 and I'm still scared of the dark. And in those moments, you know, sometimes all it takes to cause a lot of hope is a little bitty nightlight. Maybe just two watts. And hope comes. And rest comes. And sleep comes. And that's what God does in the garden. He gives them a little bit of light. And he increases that light throughout the story of the Bible until the prophet Isaiah says to the people of God that a people who walked in darkness have seen a great light when Jesus comes and he shines the love of God on the world that's been walking in deep darkness. So that's the setting of greatness. You're like, well, I'm walking through darkness. I know what it's like to be caught in a snare and to experience darkness in my life. Do you know that this could be the very setting for something great to take place in your life? Do you know that right now God wants to shine a light into your life and right in the middle of something that seems so chaos and chaotic, light comes streaming through and hope comes streaming through. It only takes a little bit of light this morning for you to grab hold of hope. And that's what God wants to do in your life through Christ. Well, let's look at the example of greatness. Look at verse 13. He tells a story, and I love this. He doesn't give us dates, and he doesn't give us times. He doesn't give us the exact historical characters, but he tells a story. Look at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. In other words, I, I had to pause because I was astounded and amazed at something that seemed great to him. Well, what seemed great? Verse 14, there was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city yet no one remembered that that poor man. He gives us an example of greatness by telling a story of of a poor wise man who delivers a city. Now note, note the story and the details. Little city. Not great city, not well-known city, not well-resourced city. Tiny, small, obscure city and a few men in it. Probably not a lot of courageous people that come out of this little city. Uh, At any rate, not a very strong army. Little firepower, not a lot going for it. And against this city, a great king comes and he besieges it. He's not casual. He wants to take it. He wants to unfold it into his kingdom. 
He wants to wipe it out and say, it's mine. And so what he does is he builds great siege works against it. In other words, the picture of the story is that this, this little city is surrounded on every corner. Doom is certain. There, there's, there's no hope in the setting of the story. Verse 15 says, but there is one hope. A poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. He's poor, he's not well known, he's not recognized, but he's wise. And in this story, they listen to his wisdom for a moment, and the power of his words deliver the city from certain destruction. We don't know how, don't know the details, but it was through him, it was through wisdom, it was through truth that he spoke, and deliverance came to the city. It says, yet no one remembered the poor man. How tragic. And, and, and not only do they not remember, verse 16 says, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So take a step back and, and just ask, what's the preacher saying is so great here? What, what seemed great? Well, I think the obvious thing that seems great here is the power of wisdom to deliver a city. Jesus said in John 8, very, very famously quoted phrase, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Freedom takes place through the truth of who God is and the principles of his character. Truth can bring freedom. It can bring freedom to an entire city that's going to be destroyed. You know, Truth can deliver your marriage. Truth can deliver that broken relationship. Truth always delivers. Truth always brings freedom. And in this story, wisdom delivers an entire city. Words of truth and hope deliver a city when they're listened. Certainly that's, that is, is what makes this great. This, this is what certainly seems great to the preacher. But I, I wonder about something else. See, the, the person is despised. Nobody thinks about the poor man. Nobody cares about the poor man. Nobody recognizes the poor man. You see, wisdom delivered the city, but love delivered the wisdom, didn't it? You see, the poor man in the story, three times, he's, he's, he's described as poverty-stricken. In other words, nobody cared about the poor man prior to this occurrence. Prior to this ensnaring entrapment that takes place in the city, nobody cared about the poor man. And, and in this story, the poor man could have just held on to his rights. He could have just thought about his history and thought about his past and said, I'm not going to deliver the wisdom. I'm not going to give the wisdom. It serves the city right. For crying out loud, nobody considered the wisdom before. Nobody cared to acknowledge or help me before. He could have held on to that. He doesn't. He overcomes his rights in love for his city and, dis- and delivers the wisdom that saves them. Look at verse 15. The lack of recognition he also overcomes. He, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one, note those words, no 
one remembered that poor man. Nobody created a statue for the poor man. Nobody wrote a story about the poor man. Nobody put up a plaque, you know, in City Hall about the poor man who delivered the entire city. Nobody even remembered the poor man. We don't even have his name. Nobody thinks on the poor man. He continues to be poor and unrecognized. Lack of recognition. And the setting of the story seems to be like, you know, he goes into delivering the city and giving it wisdom in the face of a lack of recognition. That's a great love to love a people in such a way that even if they don't recognize me, even if I'm never popular, I'm going to love these people and this person. Has that ever been difficult in your life? For your love to be bigger than how it's recognized by people? For your love to overcome being misunderstood by people? What about rejected by people? Look at verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom not only is, a, is not recognized, it's despised and his words are not heard. Have you ever been despised by somebody? Have you ever been hated by somebody? And then been called to love that person even though they despise you and they hate you? say, well, I have nobody in that life, in my life like that, and certainly I'm not being asked to do that. Well, actually you are if you're a follower of Jesus because Jesus says it's easy to love somebody that loves you. What reward is it in, in that? He says, but you image forth the character of God when you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is what the poor man's doing. He's loving his enemies, despite his rights, despite his recognition, despite the certain rejection. Well, doesn't this story kind of play out like a trailer for a great movie? Great summer flick? I mean, just think about the elements of the story. Powerful evil. Capturing the little city. Doom is certain. There's hopelessness. There's, there's no way around it. Doom is imminent. Of course, there is one hope. Only one. One man in the city. He alone has the power and the ability to save the city. But there's a huge problem. The city rejects him. Despises him. Despises what he stands for. He's viewed as a radical. His, his message is foolish. What he stands for isn't possible. And something's got to be overcome. His love has got to be bigger than their response. And his love is bigger. He gives up everything that he has to rescue them, even though they don't recognize it, they don't think about it, they don't thank him for it. And he's still a menace to society afterwards. That sounds like a story you recently read or a movie that you've seen recently. Somebody's in here going, I, I know what movie you're talking about. That's Bourne. Right? Jason Bourne. Or, or you say, no, no, that's, that's, that's the movie Braveheart, which I'm still trying to convince my wife it is a love story. No, that's the story of, of, of a hero. That's the story of the greatest story that's ever been told. 
It's just been retold and retold a thousand different ways. It's been echoed in all these, these great stories that we're drawn to. We're drawn to that story because we're created in the image of God. And, it, and this is where freedom in life is found. See, you may have never known it, but the people who stand in line at the red box are closer to the kingdom than they ever imagined. Because they're so close to this story that shows up and pops up everywhere. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of grace? The grace that shows up in that story, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, not, not by his poverty plus your poverty, by his poverty alone, might become rich. It's about a king who comes humbly and comes to a cross, and who suffers and sacrifices himself so that you and I, through his poverty, might be brought into relationship with God and become rich beyond our wildest dreams in a relationship with him. And I hope there's somebody here today that says, I want in on that. My city's falling apart. And I certainly would love to be delivered by a king like that. And this king says to you, come today. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are trapped in snares. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Come on, come one, come all. You can be delivered today. The amazing thing about this king that the story doesn't end there. This great sweeping story of his grace doesn't stop with, with him then going throughout his kingdom and bringing them all in. There's a part two, and the part two is him telling his disciples, I'm going to leave you. And they're like, what? Hello? He says, I am going to leave you. But... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And that's so important because what he says there is that even though we're close, and I'm very close to you right now, I'm going to be closer to you than than we've ever been. Because when I leave, I'm going to pour my spirit out on the church and send you out. And you're going to be a part of the story. The story's not going to be dependent upon you. You're not going to be the main plot line of the story, but you are going to be a significant player in this story. And you and I are called up into an epic greatness if we get on board with that story. If we quit trying to create our own story and try to find greatness in our own story and just join his story, we will experience greatness. Well, let's look at the means of greatness. This is, by means, I mean the how-to. How, how does wisdom deliver a city? How does that happen? Well, look at verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shoutings of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, what he says is, here's how the, the wisdom 
takes, takes place. This is how the wisdom runs and triumphs. This is how wisdom protects the city. It's when they're heard in quiet and they're not heard obnoxiously through the shouting of a ruler among fools. This idea of quiet just, just gets the idea of appropriateness, respectfulness. Maybe you could, if I'm not stretching it too far, talk about a relationally driven approach as opposed to this obnoxious yelling and inconsideration. That's not how wisdom delivered the city uh, in the story. It's not how wisdom delivers you. Uh, the wisdom of God often comes to us appropriately, respectfully, quietly, often in, in, in the context of relationship. And not through obnoxious, unnecessarily divisive ways. This is what this is is talking about. You ever see a a leader who's trying to shout at people and just try to be a ruler? I mean, the the text has a little proverbial phrase here. That person's just a ruler among fools. Nobody's hearing that person. Just shouting, demanding. But the words of the wise are quiet and are better than those shouts. In verse 18 says, this kind of wisdom is better than weapons of war. I mean, just think about that. The number of things that you look at and say, man, if you've got that firepower, you could, you could disseminate your enemy. It says, actually, no. If you've got words of wisdom, there's a power there that could deliver an entire city when it's listened to. There's a verse in Proverbs that says it like this. The teachings of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The assumption is snares of death take place all the time. Sometimes it's a temporary death and sometimes it's an eternal death. Some kind of ultimate death of life without God. But there is teaching. And this teaching comes from wise People And this teaching, this wisdom is like a fountain of life in the midst of that chaos and confusion and darkness. Life can come streaming forth and can deliver people and can deliver marriages and deliver people from addictions and deliver people from any kind of captivity. It's a fountain of life overflowing. And one question that we want to ask you to, to think about, one question we want to ask you to dream about as a church, is how can we be a great church the way verse 13 describes greatness? How can we be a church that overflows as a fountain of life to our city? That we would see our city delivered from things, delivered from addictions and and captivities. That we'd see our city delivered from the the lies of of wealth and status and prestige and and be captured by having a relationship with God through Jesus? How can we be a church that speaks truth in love the way it's described here in this passage? Well, this is how we're closing. Just four very quick things regarding the future. Number Number one is by mobilizing passionate believing prayer. We want to start there because we don't want to talk about, well, you know, if we do this kind of program or if we put something on the calendar and throw dollars at it, that, that suddenly we can deliver the city through that or, or suddenly be, the, be a fountain of life to the city. No, it starts by looking up to God and saying, God, move among us, help us, speed on in triumph. This is your city. This is your church. These are your truths. 
The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You're the one that's building your church. You're the one that's on move in our city, and we want to join you. We want to be sensitive to you. Anywhere that you're at work, we want to be a part of where you are at work. So we want the sentiment of our hearts to be the same as the Apostle Paul when he says, Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Speed ahead of our plans. Speed ahead of our programs. Speed ahead of anything that we've got going on from us and be honored and glorified and triumph as happened among you. And this is the kind of posture that Jesus says, this is how you pray. You don't pray once and say, I'm one and done. You, you ask and you keep on asking. You seek and you keep on seeking. You knock and you keep on knocking. He says, when you've got that kind of posture as a people, when you gather in my name and you pray like that, the door will be opened. The answer will be found. If you knock, it will be opened. If you seek, you will find. If you pray passionately, if you pray believing, if you pray boldly, if you pray and you keep on praying and you don't give up, God will not tarry to hear our prayers. But we must be mobilized. We must do that. We're, we're, we're taking steps at this. We're, we've got a, a weekly Friday morning prayer meeting it goes from 6.30 to 7.30. We recognize not everybody can, can come to that, but that's a church-wide thing. Anybody is welcome to be a part of that. You can pray at that hour if you can't make it here uh, on your own. But pray boldly. Pray, let your kingdom come in this city as it is in heaven when you pray. The other thing that we are, we're looking at doing more, and you heard the announcement about this, is that we want to build new relationships with people in our city, all, all kinds of different people. I just love Sydney's illustration, her, her final thoughts of her testimony, to get to know people. And if I, it, it, in recommunicating that right, it's because people are fascinating. Oh, that we would have that heart as a church, that we would say people are fascinating and created in the image of God and are incre- capable of incredible things. And we want to build new relationships with people in our city by demonstrating the gospel through service and hospitality. When you see the life of Jesus, he preaches and he proclaims clarity and truth, but he also demonstrates the kingdom and demonstrates what he's doing while he's declaring the kingdom. So two things are taking place at the same time. He doesn't choose and we're not going to choose which one of those things we're going to be about. It it comes as no surprise that when Philip goes out to the crowds, it says in Acts 8, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, very important, don't want to lose that, and saw the signs that he did. In other words, when he declared something about Christ and demonstrated what he did, when he told them, about Jesus and showed them. And we want to do more and more things of, of showing kinds of ministries, deed and truth kind of ministries. So we want to serve people through servant outreach events, like what's going to take place on August the 18th. And I was told before this service that Jeff Hackelmazian is going to get on there and get another announcement on there that you can sign up as an event. Got it in, Jeff. Got it in. Um, we want to do these kinds of servant outreach events. That, that, that give away free things, drink giveaways, free car washes on tax-free weekends, something that demonstrates the gospel to a watching world. We're going to do that on the 18th of August. We're going to have another one on September the 8th. 
We want to host block parties for people. We want to say, come on, come on with us. There's life here and we want to invite you in. We're not closed off on the relationship compartment. You know, our our cups aren't filled up to the brim on relationships. In fact, we're hungry to get to know you. We want more friends in our lives. So we want to host parties and football watching parties and other kinds of things, Christmas things. We, we want to develop whole theologies around the idea of, of parties. I'm just kidding. That's, that's me. That's, I want to do that. Uh, we want to share our life and our living rooms with people is what we're trying to say with our neighbors. So that people hear something from us and they see something in us. And lastly, this is something that we are, we are putting as a, as a new event in the life of the church. This is something that we are praying and putting resources towards and, and asking for volunteer help in and a church-wide effort. Let's link arms together. Is that we want to create a context for people who have questions about Christianity to belong before they believe. And here's what I mean by that. When you read about the life of Jesus, when you see him calling disciples in the New Testament, he often reached out to people and included them in his group before they came to believe in him as their Messiah. It doesn't take place every time, but it does take place many times. And in a post-Christian world in which we live, maybe now more than ever, people need to experience a loving community of Jesus followers before they come to believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And if I pressed you in your life, you could probably um, give witness to that experience. Somewhere along the line, you belong to a community of love or a safe place where you could ask questions. And then sometime in that season, you believed in Jesus. We want to do that. One thing we want to do in order to do that is a, a class, a course called the Bridge Course. I mean, it, it, the, the name kind of describes the vision of it, a, a bridge between this place and, and the people of God. The Bridge Course is written by Jim Donahue. He's a pastor in Philly at a sister church. They've done 39 of these over many years. They've seen hundreds of people come to faith in Christ, and they've served many others who haven't in a loving witness in their city. We want to do this course by, uh, by starting with a preview on Thursday night, September the 13th. And we want to give you that date so that you can all begin praying about that and be thinking about maybe there's somebody that you would invite to that. Now keep in mind, this is a pilot course. We'll have limited seating. There's going to be many flies in the ointment of this class. But we, we want to start, even if it's a, if it's a small start. And uh, we'll have limited seating. But... Think about who you would invite to a course like this. We'll explore topics like this. Why did Jesus have to die? Many people ask that question. Is Jesus really the only way, or many ways? Why does a good God allow suffering? So these are standalone nights, and somebody could show up to any of these standalone nights, but we would love to see as many people as possible registered, and you can register on, on our church website right now. If you are here today and you'd like to get in on a class like this, it's a free dinner, free child care, free material. In other words, we're, we're sacrificing something as a church, church-wide, to make this happen for people to come in, regardless of religious background, regardless of any questions that they would have. 
So we want to invite you to pray. We want to invite you to serve. We want to invite you to help out with meals. We want to invite you to bring your friends to the preview night on the 13th. And, uh, and we're, we're really excited. This isn't just a one class and done. We, we actually are looking at this. Let's do this in the fall. Let's do this in the winter. Let's do this in the spring. So we've always got some place that we can invite people who are curious to come on in and hear more about Jesus. Lastly, and this is the final thing I want to say is this is more in the dream category and less in the, in the program category, is that we want to equip you to share the gospel with friends and neighbors in a winsome way. I mean, being ready with a response when people ask you, but not just being ready passively, because, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but to take the gospel with your story, with your words, but with this book, taking the gospel into the workplace, taking the gospel into the classroom, taking the gospel into the to your entertainment, into the, the places that you hang out. How can you take the gospel? And how can we equip you to take the gospel into all of these, these places? How can we help you respond to the Holy Spirit? We don't want to program everything in the church or create all the structures of evangelism. We don't believe that that's how it takes place at all. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you in an unstructured, very spontaneous, very bold way many times throughout your day and week. But we want to help and, and equip you to respond to his, to his promptings and to his, lead, to his leadings. We would love to see our city delivered like the city of Samaria was delivered when Philip preached the gospel. And it says that great joy came to the city. Would you just dream with us and pray with us that we would be a a church that brings great joy to our city? What what this week of the Olympics has taught me, if it's taught me anything, besides staying up really, really late, is that because of the live coverage and then the video afterwards, it's very frustrating to hold good news back. Anybody experience that? You, you, you found out somebody got a gold medal before you wanted to know the person got the gold medal. But it's such good news, it just has a way of leaking out of people. And how much more should that be us as a church? How much more should, should this good news of Jesus leak out at us onto our city and fill our city up with, with joy? Let's, let's close by praying. If you don't mind, let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we ask if there's anybody here today that has never really seen your grace or, or your love or your sacrificial heart for them in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that they would believe you. They wouldn't try to better themselves or ready themselves for an experience or an encounter with you, but they would just call out to you the way a child calls out to a father and say yes to you. I want to be delivered. I want to be in a relationship with you. I've run from you, but I'm drawn into your greatness, your character, your heart. Would you move on on people's hearts this morning? Anybody that's hearing this, that they would say yes to you just by trusting you, just by leaning on you by faith. Lord, there's probably others here today maybe tempted to think that, you know, nothing significant or great could ever take place with my life. Would they understand that word as an accusing lie of the enemy and not the voice of God? Would you give them that discernment? 
they would see and we would all see as a church that you called us up into something great because you are great, your gospel is great, and you're sending us out as ambassadors and representatives of your grace to our city. So bring joy to our city, Lord, not because we've got a, a program or a calendar, but bring joy to our city because we've got your spirit and your life in us. been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.